Thank you for listening to the Mike Podcast. My name is Evan Price. I am the founder and CEO of Artist Collective. And on today's episode, Vinny Hines, your host, is going to be chatting with David Adler, who is an incredible entertainment lawyer here in the Chicagoland area. And they are going to be chatting about copyright. When is your music protected? When are you ready for a lawyer? What does all of this entail? When are you ready? All of these questions will be answered and more, so make sure you stick around for all of that gold, okay? But before then, if you like this content, please subscribe, give us a nice rating, write a nice review. All of this really helps get us to the next level and get to the ears of other artists that might need to hear this information. And if you are one of those artists and you are looking to elevate your career and maybe work with a coach or a consultant to take your career to the next level, I would love to have that conversation with you to see how Artist Collective can support your dreams. So go to artistcollect.com slash superfan to get my free training to explain exactly how we're working with artists on a daily basis to make this happen. So let's get into the interview. Here we are, the Mike Podcast, brand new. We are live with David M. Adler, Esquire. I love putting the Esquire on there. How do I get an Esquire on my name? You just, you know what? You just put comma ESQ period and boom, you're an Esquire. Oh man, that's that. I, I want to be in the same circles as you, man. So maybe that's what I sure. need to do. So he is the principal attorney and driving force behind his law firm and the technology practice group with an extensive background and experience in corporate law, including contract interpretation, drafting, negotiation, enforcement, intellectual property law. Now, that's one of the things we want to focus on today, because I get so many questions from our members and people in the Facebook group that they are petrified of this legal landscape. You know, they're just starting to put some money in their pocket. Um, and so I, I'm so intrigued to pick your brain and kind of go through your own superhero origin story. Uh, but I'd love to get started to hear about your firm, where you're located, and some of the ways, uh, you know, that people can in, immediately get to know you better and possibly look at your services. Sure. Well, hey, thank you very much for having me on. This is exciting. Uh, I love the opportunity to kind of talk about what I'm doing. Uh, as you guys over there at Artist Collective know, um, I love kind of sharing my knowledge and my experience with your membership. So this is a great opportunity for me. Uh, I'll start with kind of where I am today mm -hmm. very quickly and then step back and give you my, you know, my origin story. Perfect. So uh, today, I manage an intellectual property practice. It's a boutique law practice, meaning that, you know, there's more things that we don't do than things that we do do. We're very focused on a few areas of law, corporate law, corporate transactions, arts, entertainment, and media law. And it's really, you know, full service legal services for businesses and entrepreneurs in, in those fields. And then also a healthy dose of technology related transla uh, transactions and, you know, related types of matters. So that's, you know, 24 years into the practice of law. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I love what I do. Uh, I have no problem showing up to work every day. I have my own office that's uh, located in Riverwoods, Illinois, about a mile and a half from my house. So on a good day, I get to ride my bike to work. Um, nice. Most days I, I still need the car, but, um, you know, I also maintain an office down in uh, the Chicago Loop, uh, 
part-time for clients who want to meet down there. And I've always felt uh, it's really important for my clients and my practice that to kind of stay plugged in with the pulse of what's going on in Chicago. And yeah. so while I have all of the benefits of being in the suburbs, <laughs> lower rent, less density, right. uh, a little bit more peace and quiet, um, at the same time, I do feel like I maintain my connection with what's going on in the city you know, and uh, the, the pulse of the entertainment industry. So, you know, the, the next question is, how did I get here? And I have to tell you, it's been a, it's been a long, windy <laughs> road. Um, I think you really have to go back to when I was seven years old and I started my first business. <laughs> I oh, wow. would fish golf. Yeah, I would fish golf balls out of the creek and I would sit at the tee. We live by a golf course in Ann Arbor and I would sit at the tee and I'd sell the golf balls back to the golf golfers at a quarter apiece. And every once in a while, I'd have somebody come and you just buy the whole bucket for like five bucks, right? Um, and so I think back then I, I realized the benefit of being your own boss mm. uh, and it really motivated me. Flash forward to uh, high school, I had a T math teacher who introduced me to uh, software. So it kind of tickled my technology bug. And I said, okay, this is kind of cool stuff. Didn't see myself as a programmer. Gamers didn't exist back then. Right. Uh, you know, it was not a computer nerd by, by any sense of the word, but I was intrigued. Um, I got to college, I went to Indiana University, and we actually had access to email systems. This is in the, the you know, the early 90s. Uh, we were using email. I was using email to communicate with friends in, at colleges and in, in other states. Uh, that also intrigued me and, and sort of really kind of tri tripped something in my mind that, you know, this, this internet, these interconnected computers, because I don't think we knew it was called the internet back then. Right. I knew right. the internet interconnected computers were, were going to change things. Next, you know, flash forward again. Now I'm in law school, uh, late 90s. When I registered for class, they told me that I had um, five megabytes of web space on the school's web server. Okay, now in 1997, in fact, when I started law school, it was 94, right? So in mm -hmm. 1994, nobody knew what web space was. Nobody knew what to do with it. Uh, by the time I graduated law school, I taught myself HTML. I taught myself Perl. I taught myself Unix. Uh, I was designing web pages. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I definitely believed that it, the, that was the future of, of commerce. Um, maybe I couldn't put it in those words exactly, but I knew the world was changing. Uh, but I also had a law degree, you know, and I had a law license. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to make nearly as much money designing web pages as I am practicing law. Right. Now, again, hindsight, 24 years maybe I made the wrong choice, right? Maybe I should have really gone into web design and web <laughs> marketing because that has not gone away. Uh, but really what, you know, what I did is I focused on what I saw as a huge growth opportunity. Right in front of my eyes, um, the internet e-commerce was opening up. This was a whole new world of doing business. And by 1999, I started my own practice. So I, I got my, I cut my teeth doing mergers, acquisitions, divestitures, venture capital work for a large firm downtown. I loved the work. It was great. I worked with entrepreneurs. I did complicated deals. Uh, I learned the art of the deal. Um, I learned what it meant to really get your hands around a very large transaction with lots of moving parts, with different people, with different roles. It's mm -hmm. tremendous experience. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there was the entrepreneur inside me that saw what was going on in the world, wanted to be a part of that, um, realized that a large firm was maybe not the best platform for me individually. Right. Uh, I'm a bit of a free spirit. I'm a bit of a free thinker. Uh, like many, many 
artists out there, right? Mm -hmm. I have a hard time to conforming to most norms. Now, again, I'm a lawyer, right? I'm a corporate lawyer. So I'm pretty good at conforming when it suits me. Right. Um, I was going to say, you're a bit of an oxymoron there. Right, right. You know what? It's, it's the freedom of the mind. Uh, But I think that's why I relate so well with my, my creative clients is that I understand that, you know, they have a different worldview and, and, you know, we're looking to sort of break free from what has constrained us so far and, you know, really being innovative and creative and finding new ways to do things. Uh, And that's in, you know, one of the best ways that's expressed is in music. I I personally am constantly searching out new music, new artists, new genres, and my tastes run the gamut. I like everything from, you know, (laughs) heavy metal to Mozart, from, you know, hip hop and dance music to, I won't say country western because I, I don't quite care for country western, right? <laughs> but, but pretty much everything in between, right? I, I really love it all. Uh, I came of age, you know, with it, what what is now called sort of indie alternative music, right? right. The British new wave in the '80s and '90s. So that's you know that's where my musical tastes go. But uh, it's really you know an an, a, a, an identification with my creative clients who are entrepreneurial, who are creative, you know, and who want to do something out there. So. So in 99, I started my own law firm. My focus is primarily on technology. So I understood tech, understood software. I knew that these new companies that were being created to do internet marketing, to do web marketing, to do web design, they needed a lawyer who understood what their industry was. And there were lawyers who understood software. Software has been around for a long, long time, but e-commerce and internet sort of presented a new paradigm. And I was just really lucky. Right place, right time. I was in Chicago. Chicago was blowing up with dot-com startups. There was a lot of energy. There was a lot of interest. Uh, There were a lot of groups that were meeting. So you had all kinds of networking events going on. And I really think it was sort of that critical mass of what was happening in Chicago in the late 90s, in the early 2000s that enabled me to establish my practice. Because I I have, you know, I have no connections. There's no lawyers in my family. Um, I have no family in Chicago or anywhere near Chicago. Um, My, you know, by the time I got to law school, my dad was pretty much retiring from his business in the sales profession. And my father is not a believer of nepotism. So he never once threw a bone my way. (laughs) Um, if anything, yeah. probably made it harder for you just to see. Yeah, you, you know what? It. But you appreciate what you earn. So, you know, I 100%. started my law practice with zero connections, zero clients. I knew nobody outside of my law school classmates. And I just went out there and I hustled, right? That's what they call it this day, these days. You got to hustle. I put mm-hmm. my business card in every hand I could find. You know, if somebody said, well, hey, do you do this kind of work? Absolutely. I do that. That's what I do. I can help you. Right. No fear. Uh, really willing to, you know, to learn on the job, uh, always looking for new opportunities. And, you know, they, they say 90% of success is just showing up. What I learned in those early years of my practice is that is 100% true 100% of the time. If mm-hmm. you just show up, just showing up sends a message, right? Just people saw me out there hustling. And after I'd been doing it for about a year, some of the lawyers at big firms would come to me and they'd say, hey, you're that guy who does e-commerce, right? And I'd be like, yeah, I do it. They're like, hey, I think I've got a referral for you. You know, they can't afford our big firm rates. Maybe you're a better fit for them, mm. right? And so I just, I generated this reputation as a young guy who worked with startups, who knew the tech industry. I was very visible on the tech scene. I showed up to all the events. 
I said hi to people. Um, you know, I, what I didn't do, I, I, I didn't go out and say, hey, can you give me business, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't say, I, you know, I want you to pay me or any of that stuff. I just went out there and said, hey, my name's Dave. This is what I do. If you think I can help you someday, you know, feel free to reach out. So really what I did is I planted a lot of seeds um, and, I, and I really reached out to everybody I could. I went to every event I could. Uh, and again, I was very fortunate. As that momentum started to build, I started to see new opportunities. So early in my career, I was able to teach a couple classes at Columbia College of Chicago. Mm. Uh, one class called Introduction to E-Business, which is a class that I actually created for their arts management department. It didn't exist before I taught it. Oh wow! And then I also taught uh, arts and entertainment law, which was part of the the management curriculum there at Columbia for students who are going to arts, entertainment, and media. I think they've changed the department name, uh, but it used to be called the arts, entertainment, and media management department, hmm. right? So, so that's early 2000s, 2005, 2006. And again, you know, the internet was causing a shift. It was causing a disruption. Early on, it disrupted retail. People obviously understood, okay, if I'm going to sell things, I can sell them through the computer. Okay. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Books, anything that's intangible, books, music, right? Amazon was the, the prime mover in that space. They showed us that, hey, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's bits or atoms, it's the same thing. Uh, but what I saw, what I experienced was that media and entertainment companies wanted to take their products online. They wanted to distribute online. They wanted to market online. They wanted to sell online. And for large companies who could afford the large law firms, that was fine. My uh, clients primarily came from small creatives, uh, you know, smaller outfits, a lot of new startups who were interested in, in taking media online. And that's really how I got into arts and entertainment uh, through my connection with Columbia College. Early in my career, I was production counsel on an independent film that opened up film to me. And really, and I do, uh, I should also say that early in my career, I started doing volunteer work for lawyers of the creative or lawyers for the creative arts mm. here in Chicago. It's a not-for-profit organization that helps direct uh, creative people or people with arts, entertainment, and media needs to pro bono lawyers who can help them. Uh, and between those couple of things, I started to get entertainment law clients. I mm -hmm. started to work with musicians and songwriters and bands, filmmakers, TV writers, TV producers. Uh, I worked with choreographers. I started working with authors. And, and the momentum kind of built upon itself. Uh, I can tell you that I did not set out to be an entertainment lawyer. That, that was not my goal. That was my uh, next I, question. <laughs> yeah. No, I really lucked into it. Um, it blended what I loved about the, the practice of law, the corporate entrepreneurial side, understanding businesses, understanding business organizations, um, understanding contracts and how business deals get done with the creative side, sort of the need to create. How do we protect what we've created, right? How do we exploit what we've created and, and those kind of things. And so it really brought all of my skill sets together um, in a way that was just worked for me. And worked for my clients. And, you know, people hear that, oh, I'm in entertainment law, right? I might have, must have all these great big famous clients. And I really don't. Most of my client, clients are up and comers. I have worked with 
a handful of big names in the entertainment industry, you know, but I can count them on one hand, <laughs> right? So those, those big A-list stars are few and far between. Most of my clients are, are creative professionals. A lot of them work day jobs <laughs> mm -hmm. to support their, you know, their creative career. So, um, you know, it was really a couple of those circumstances by the, by 2010, 2012, uh, I had uh, affiliated myself with a couple other entertainment lawyers here in Chicago. A couple guys, uh, we got together, we all had a shared interest in lawyers for the creative arts. We also had a shared interest in supporting Chicago's creative community. And we thought, you know, Chicago needs an entertainment law firm. So the four of us came together. It was called Levin's Strand, Glover and Adler. And we were around for about probably three or four years. Uh, and just, you know, my career path kind of took me in a different direction. And, and after being with them for a few years, I had a very large client come back to me after several years. And it was one of these opportunities. It was just sort of too big to pass up. Um, mm. And, you know, because of the nature of the circumstances, I kind of wound up transitioning out of my law firm practice and back into sort of solo private practice. And, you know, and then really that's kind of what's brought me here today. Very cool. Well, thank you for wonderful bow that you've tied on your life story right there. You've done this before. Um, now, walk me back to whenever you were just starting out in entertainment law uh, and and starting to navigate that territory. And obviously it, it, it fell into place with this previous client. But can you walk me through some, uh, maybe one of your most interesting uh, cases as far as maybe one of the most interesting uh, entertainment law um, situations that you found yourself in? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I can tell you, I'll, I'll give you kind of a couple little anecdotal things and then I'll share kind of a bigger story that I think had a, had a pretty large impact on the trajectory of my career. Perfect. Uh, you know, I was fortunate that I did work with a couple small bands and a couple artists right out of the gate. You know, um, somebody needs a publishing agreement. Somebody needs, you know, uh, someone, a lawyer to look at a recording agreement, right? Mm -hmm. So I kind of cut my teeth doing some of these little one-off things. And like everything else, you know, you do something and then 6, 12, 18 months down the road, somebody either comes back or they pass your name along. So I had a couple of those kinds of experiences. But I think one success that I had very early in my career was working with, uh, it wasn't in the music industry, it was in the, the live theater community here in Chicago. Uh, I was approached by a team of uh, professionals who were putting on You're in Town the Musical. <laughs> and if you're, I don't know if anybody's familiar with You're in Town, but it's a really kind of offbeat sort of um, niche type of musical. It was, a, it, it got great critical success at the Fringe Festival in London when it first opened. And my client is a well-known Jeffrey Award-winning uh, director here in Chicago. And he and his friends, who are also all creative professionals, wanted to mount a production of You're in Town here in Chicago. Mm. And, you know, if, you're under, if you understand musical theater, there is a very large difference between what's known as a storefront theater and a traditional Broadway or off-Broadway type of production, okay? Everything in a storefront theater is orders of magnitude less, less money, less lighting, <laughs> less sound, fewer actors, fewer props, okay? It is 
really the, the pure acting that tells the story. And in our case, what we had was uh, the Chicago production team did their production of You're in Town. And the, this is sort of a complicated story. There's a, there's a law firm out of New York that sort of made their name suing people for violating what they called the director's copyright. There is no such thing as the director's copyright. Copyright law does not protect stage direction. It does oh, wow. not protect, you know, and this law firm was basically shaking down small community theaters. They'd send a cease and desist letter, fire and brimstone. We're going to sue you for copyright infringement because you violated our, you know, our director's copyright when you produced your version of this musical. And they had, this law firm in New York had great success primarily because they had the two largest writers or the two largest unions. They had the stage directors union behind them and they had the writers union behind them. And a lot of times these unions were funding the litigation. Mm. And, you know, if you know anything about litigation, you need very deep pockets to fight. Um, and typically in these types of situations where you have a David versus Goliath, David will roll over at the first sign of trouble. Okay. As soon as that lawsuit is filed, boom, I'm done. I'll sign anything you want me to sign just so you don't sue me. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the case with like 90 percent of my clients. They just don't have the financial wherewithal to fight a lawsuit mm -hmm. um, for, you know, I, I do have some clients who are you know more successful, more wealthy and, and simply have the means to fight these. But that's the exception, not the rule. Um, so in this particular case, when they filed their lawsuit, they basically accused my clients of, of plagiarism. And so mm -hmm. rather than lay down, what we did is we turned around and we sued them for defamation. Oh, wow. Yeah, and declaratory judgment of no copyright infringement. And again, you have to think of the context. You have the New York production team who mounted a Broadway level version of this musical suing the Chicago production team who mounted a little tiny community theater version of it. Wow. Okay. You can't compare them. The lighting was different. The costumes were different. The stage props were different, okay? Everything about the, the production was different. Yes, it was the same musical, but guess what? When you produce a musical, you get to use everything that's part of that musical. That's part right. of the license, right? So this was, you know, this was really just kind of a farce. Um, and, you know, so we filed, we filed the complaint. They filed a motion to dismiss. And the, the court ruled that we had actually pleaded a cause of action for defamation because of the way that they accused my clients of having stolen certain ideas. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, you know, at that point is really when the reality set in, the economic reality. And I sort of, like, at that point, my clients were able to afford me but as soon as they lost that motion, um, they really, you know, amped up the, the prosecution and my clients were no longer in a position to fight it anymore. Uh, I wound up through lawyers for the creative arts again, getting a large law firm to come in on a pro bono basis and kind of handle it. And then things quickly settled thereafter. And I wasn't part of that settlement uh, but I know the details and, you know, it just, the whole thing just kind of went away. But um, it was, you know, for me, it was sort of a big victory against a very large, very prestigious law firm representing the, under, uh, the underdog in a situation when, you know, I knew we were right. right. Now, I don't do a lot of litigation. Most of my practice is not litigation. But because I understand litigation and I've been through it, I think it helps 
uh, give some context to the advice that I give to my clients in terms of, you know, what's the next step? What's the risk? What happens if we go to the mat? What does that really mean? What does it mean in terms of investment of time? What does it mean in terms of investment of money? What's it going to do to your life? Right? So um, right. all it of that colors how I negotiate. 100%. And for those that are are just now cutting their teeth in the music industry, um, is there a minimum financial threshold to where it's time to pick up the phone and call somebody uh, if it's not connected to something like libel or defamation? Um, let's let's go back to that scenario you were talking about, about a recording deal. Um, or an agreement that you might be looking at. Is there a minimum financial threshold or certain depth of pockets, as you put it, that a musician should have before they even pick up the phone uh, for legal counsel? Um, like, is, is a $2,500 disagreement worth making that phone call? You know, that's really an excellent question. And I think it there's a lot to it that, that we should unpack, right? So okay. uh, I, I think there's two separate issues in there. Number one is the issue of how much money do you need before you hire a lawyer? Okay, so let's just put that one to the side for a second. The other issue is, you know, how much money do you need to spend um, in a lawsuit? And really, it, the context is everything. But for most of my clients, you know, if, if there is a lawsuit on the table, um, we will look at what, you know, what are the damages, what are the costs, um, it, you know, just kind of out of context as a general rule, I would say anything that's under about $20,000 is simply not worth fighting over. Hmm. Um, you know, now if you're being sued, okay, then you absolutely right. have to defend yourself, right? Uh, because if you don't, then, you know, the system just works against you. Uh, you can never it's you can never just walk away or forget about it or hope that it goes away. You have to be proactive. Um, but, you know, a lot of my clients will come to me and say, hey, Dave, you know, this client stiffed me for five thousand dollars. And I'll tell them, you know what, it's going to cost you five thousand dollars just to get me to drag their ass into court. Right. Mm, right. Um, so that's part of the calculus. The other thing that's different in entertainment than let's say traditional commercial litigation, like between businesses or contracts, that sort of thing is oftentimes entertainment related matters have intellectual property rights tied up in them. They have copyright rights, they have trademark rights. Well, the copyright statute and the trademark statutes provide what's known as fee shifting. So they actually do provide incentives for people to protect their rights. And that too figures into the calculus of whether you want to, you know, sue somebody. Um, I have been approached by people to do, you know, let's say they haven't gotten their royalty checks, right? And so they want to sue to get royalty checks. And they say, hey, listen, why don't you, you know, take this on contingency? I'll give you a third, mm. right? Um, or somebody might have a copyright infringement lawsuit, right? And copyright infringement, the remedies give you things like costs and attorney's fees. They give you, you know, different formulations of damages. So that's very different than a standard commercial type of litigation where each party pays their own costs. Mm -hmm. um, unless a contract has specific prevailing party language, you have to be willing to fund your own litigation you know, without the prospect of getting any of that back. If you win, maybe, but there's no guarantee. 
in entertainment related litigation, there may be these fee shifting, you know, provisions, you may be able to recover things like costs and attorneys fees. And that certainly affects the calculus of where, you know, whether you file suit or how you negotiate. So um, for artists, I think that, you know, their analysis of litigation is maybe a little bit more complex. It needs to be a little bit more thought through. I see. Okay. So, it, so and it sounds like the likelihood that you would win is it kind of, it plays a role in whether or not you should even make that phone call uh, if, from what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Every case is facts and circumstances dependent. Mm -hmm. So you really, you have to have, you have to have a lawyer who understands the issues. And I would submit that, you know, a lot of lawyers who say they do entertainment law really don't understand all of the fundamentals. I mean, they may have a, an understanding of intellectual property law and they may have an understanding of contract law and you know, that will get you about 70, 80% of the way there, but there's a lot of nuances, especially in music, especially in film, uh, especially in literature that just don't exist outside of those industries. Right. So, you know, right. being, being able to really wrap your head around all those issues, I think is, is what the client needs. And so, yeah, I mean, at some level you need to decide, Hey, is, you know, is this really worth it to me um, to, to, to pursue? Right. And um, I think people have an ownership over their own ideas. I mean, that's that's the whole business we're in, creating something that nobody else can create and hopefully creating a business around that and sustaining ourselves. So like I, I feel like a lot of artists, uh, you mentioned the fundamentals, and I think fundamentally, a lot of artists don't know the moment that they start being protected by copyright law. So uh, walking through the creation process, let's say of a collaborative song, because we have so many artists that love collaborating, they walk into the apartment of the producer, the producer's got a beat that might be, you know, 12 bars long and say, hey, do you like this? Do you want to start making a song? They sit down, they write the song, they record it that day. In what part of that process do they begin being protected? You know, that's really an excellent question. And uh, thanks for the segue. You know, it's it's super complicated. There's a okay. lot in there. Um, collaboration is, you know, it's this is I see this all the time. It's ready, shoot, aim. You know, it's it's exactly like you said, they walk into the studio, they hit it off, they start, you know, laying down beats, they start laying down tracks, they start recording it, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, they've got a song, but nobody's actually start to think, stopped to think, well, who owns what part of this? Mm. So let's just, let's go back to copyright law 101 and start with the fact that in the United States, copyright law says that you own anything that you create that is fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Okay, so that is, there's a lot in that definition. If you are in the studio and you're rapping it out or you're singing or whatever it is, you're playing instruments, but nothing's recorded, no copyrightable creation has been made. Okay, mm -hmm. so there's nothing that's been fixed. The second you hit that record button, you are now creating a copyrighted work. So the all of the authors, even with you, even if you have joint authors, are equal owners of that entire work. So if you've got three people in the studio working on it, absent some either written agreement to the contrary or some other understanding based on the circumstances then you have a collective work or a joint work of authorship. 
Okay. Mm. Um, so what is what does that mean in practicality? For artists, producers, anybody who's going into the studio, think about these things beforehand. Do I have a contract with the producer? Do I have a contract with my set musician? Does it say that I will own this? Does it say we will co-own it? Does it say that I will own it, but I'll pay you some royalties, right? There's a lot of ways to slice and dice it. And, and the one thing about intellectual property rights is you can never be too early. Never be too early. Mm. You have to start thinking about it from day one. Uh, musicians, especially because of the nature of, you know, the collaborative nature of music, you, you often have multiple people working on things and you have to be mm -hmm. very, very clear ahead of time. It's, it's almost impossible to unpack it after the fact, right? Because let's say, let's say using your example again, you know, this, this, they, they recorded the song, they sent out a demo, what do you know? Everybody loves it. Next thing you know, it's at the top of the charts. Well, let's complicate things a little bit. Let's say that the producer and the, you know, the artist don't see eye to eye anymore. And they think, you know, maybe the producer thinks, well, geez, you know, if it hadn't have been for my beats, you wouldn't have had any song. But if the right. artist thinks, well, it hadn't have been for my lyrics, you wouldn't have had any song. So, you know, I don't want to share with you, right? Money makes people see things differently. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, at that point, it's very, very hard to unpack it. And, you know, what courts look at is what was the intent of the parties, right? So using your example, it's kind of hard to tell. It, you could say, yeah, it looks like they intended to create something collaboratively. And I would say you wouldn't be wrong, right? But that's, you know, that's the nuances of copyright laws. You really have to understand what was the intent of the parties going into it? Did they intend that one person would really own this work, that they would own it together? Maybe one person would own the lyrics, but the other would own the music, you know? So there's, there's just a lot to it. And to go back to your earlier question, like how much money do you need to have before you hire a lawyer? Don't wait till you have money. Once, if you are committed to pursuing this career path, you know, you need to consult with an entertainment lawyer. If you don't have any money, call your local pro bono office, right? Here mm -hmm. in Chicago, in, in all of Illinois, we have lawyers for the creative arts. There are pro bono arts organizations in every major city in the country. So, you know, reach out to them first. That's, you know, that's how I got some of my early entertainment law clients. I did pro bono work. These people, they needed an entertainment lawyer. They needed somebody to review their recording contract or whatever it was. They just didn't have any money to pay for it. Right. And, you know, because they came to me through a pro bono arts organization, I knew it was legit. I knew I could feel good about doing the work. I knew it wasn't somebody who was just trying to get some free legal advice out of me. Um, and not, you know, not only do I support the artist, but I support the pro bono arts organization. I support the community as a whole. As a whole. So, you know, for, for artists who, you know, really don't think they have the time for, you know, or the money to, to, for a lawyer, at least maybe reach out, try and, you know, try and establish a relationship, um, try and get some pro bono help, start thinking about what you need to know to protect yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, just, you know, I want to reiterate, when you create something, when you create music, you own the copyright when you create it. And I, I don't know if a lot of artists really understand that, that they own it on day one. Right. Um, it sounds to me like one of the easiest ways to take care of that is take your cell phone, point it at yourself and say, I'm with such and such. We're co-writing on this song. I'm going to record this session to the cloud. 
and then set it in the corner. I mean, at a bare minimum, it seems like that should happen. I mean, obviously having the contracts, having these templates, having these conversations and really setting the expectations. Because I personally, when somebody starts talking about contracts, paperwork, that tells me they plan on making money with this project. And, right. and I see so many newbie artists, myself included, because I went through the gambit with uh, uh, the, the America's Got Talent, The Voice, American Idol. I signed contracts on the industry side for all of those cats. And right. first off, I was floored by how thick they were, how many they were. And I was also floored by the fact that they bull rushed me three hours before they were due to be signed to where I couldn't possibly get legal counsel. So there's there's this this balance between like the con artists of the industry that are going to try and tie up developmental artists in these binding unfair contracts that I'm constantly trying to warn newbie artists of, right? And just because it's American Idol and you've seen him on NBC doesn't make him any less of a con artist. And that's really hard for, for me to teach people this. So, but, but like with balance in mind, I also have clients that come in petrified to show us, to even let us listen to their music before it's released. So there's this weird balance where sometimes people are on the obsessive side and sometimes people are so ready to sign their life away. It's ridiculous. So what is one of the most common ways that a budding artist might be conned? Well, I think you, you know, you hit the nail on the head with the contract there. Uh, I, over the years, have seen the good, the bad and the ugly of these, you know, entertainment related contracts. What I've, what I've found is the larger, more established organization is going to have a very lengthy, very clearly written contract where they take 100% of everything away from you, right? <laughs> it, is, it is airtight that they will own everything. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side of the spectrum, you have sort of the up and coming record producers, promoters, wannabe record labels. Uh, managers who have, you know, something they downloaded off the internet and maybe they tweaked it or they got something from their cousin, Jane, who's a lawyer in, in LA. And um, those are the scarier contracts because the people who are putting those contracts in front of the artists don't even know what they say, mm -hmm. right? So how can the artists know what they say? And, and more often there's, there's more bad and wrong going on in those things than going right. Now, you know, if you're the artist, you, you may have no choice, right? It may be three hours before you get to go on stage live at American Idol and you decide, are you in or are you out? Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that point, it's not much of a choice, you, you know, and if you and are- And it's literally all in or all out. Yes. They erase yes. your footage. You'll never be seen. You'll never have any of that equity or they own you for the next indefinite amount of time. Yeah, they're, they're really scary. I, I have done uh, contracts with major network television outlets. I have done recording agreements with major record labels. Uh, they own you. The, the television talent industry, I think, is a little bit more oppressive than the recorded music industry. Uh, but, you know, that's, I think, largely a product of reality television and, and you know, the many, many ways that those properties can be commercialized, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think you need to think that every company wants to be Disney. 
meaning <laughs> they want to merchandise the shit out of every single thing they can think of. If they can put a, if they can think of a way to put a price tag on it, they're going to put a price tag on it and they're going to sell it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what that boils down to is you need to understand what your rights are, what you can control, what you can't control. Right. And, and, you know, you got to make a bargain. I often bring up Taylor Swift because, you know, she is sort of exhibit a of an emerging artist who really was taken advantage of and signed, you know, very lengthy uh, contracts for her music without any real understanding of what she was going away. She didn't know that she was going to be the star that she is today. Right. right. But the one thing that she did that was probably saved her, I don't know, maybe, maybe not saved her career, but one of the things I think that certainly allows her to sleep at night is the fact that she maintained control of her compositions. Mm. Um, and that's something, you know, as an artist that you need to be aware of, um, and you may or may not get that right. I'm not saying you will, but that's one of those things. Like in her case, yes, she recorded all these albums and now somebody owns, else owns her whole catalog of music and they can do whatever they want. They can slap it on a car commercial. They can put it on the side of a bus. I couldn't right? imagine. They can, do whatever they, they can do whatever they want with her recorded music. What they cannot do, they can't prevent her from re-recording her songs. Mm. And which I believe she's in the process of doing in, She's going to re-record her music and she's going to re-release it. And then you, as a fan of Taylor Swift, can decide, well, do I want to support the man or do I want to support Taylor Swift, right? So I, that was really genius on her part. And, um, you know, I think up and coming artists really need to be aware of how much of this stuff can I main maintain control of in the beginning? How much of this stuff can I make, you know, can I get back after some period of time? Right. Um, you know, and there's, God, there's so many nuances. It's just, you know, it's too hard. I spent an entire semester at DePaul College of Law teaching music law. I mean, right. it was a one semester class. We covered contracts, we covered copyright, right of publicity, uh, trademarks. I mean, there's, you know, we looked at recording contracts, producing contracts, talent management contracts, right? You, you got to break these things down because there's so many uh, moving parts to all of them. Um, you know, and, and I guess for, you know, for emerging artists, know what your value is, know what you have, um, record as much of your stuff as you can, protect as much as your stuff as you can, uh, but don't be afraid to share either, right? If you have, uh, you know, if you've written lyrics to a song, you own the copyright in those lyrics, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you share it with somebody and they just go ahead and copy your lyrics, Yes, it's copyright infringement. Okay. Yes, you'll have to prove it in a court of law and blah, 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 blah. But, right, you don't have to do anything special to protect those rights. You own those rights from the get go. Same thing, you know, and I love your idea of just holding up your phone and saying, hey, you know, we're going to record something right now. Um, you know, and I'm going to put this up online because at least it gives you a sense of what the parties intended at the time they did it. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, artists aren't thinking about these things. Artists want to make music, you know, they get, they get lost in the mo moment. And it's, I see this with all of my clients, regardless of their industry, you know, whether it's film, theater, literature, right. They get lost in their idea and that's all they want. They want to get their idea out there and they sort of don't, understand or don't account for the the structure of the system and the way it works right. obviously this you know smarter uh, or savvier or more experienced artists that you know 
they've been burned or at least they've been mentored earlier in their career and they kind of know what questions to ask. Um, I'm very fortunate that I'm working with a young guy right now who before he did the, you know, before he laid down his first track, he came to me and he said, Dave, I want to be a, a music star. What do I need to do to protect myself? And literally every step of the way, as he's come up with new ideas, as he's come up with new music, new branding concepts, he's always called me and, you know, he said, hey, this is, this is what I'm thinking about doing. How am I exposed here? What do I have to do? He knows that he doesn't have all the answers. He knows that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Right. Right. And, and so that's why he leans on me. And I think for, for artists out there, for anybody in the entertainment industry is just understand that you don't know what you don't know and don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, even if, you know, if you think you've got a legal question and you've got somebody in your family who's a lawyer, maybe they're not an entertainment lawyer, ask them, right? Um, get advice, get feedback. And, you know, if it's something that's important and you really need to hire a lawyer for somebody will say, hey, listen, you need to hire a lawyer to help you with this. Right. And I think that one of the best ways to you know, help yourself is also to be aware of when, be aware of preventative measures as well, right? Come into the conversations knowing exactly where the lines of legality are. Like, for example, I think one thing that I see artists do constantly are steal samples from other songs or other artists, right? Um, I don't think that artists even typically know where the lines of that being okay and being uh, you know, stealing. Can you kind of explain where that starts and stops for artists? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you have to go back to the sampling culture of the 80s, right? And uh, what happened was sampling happened before anybody really thought about whether or not it was stealing. Uh, and and this is, you know, there's there's a lot of myths about copyright. And, and I've heard things like, well, if you only use seven seconds of a song, then it's not <laughs> copyright infringement, right? That's entirely false, okay? Mm. Copyright protects something the moment it's created. It doesn't matter if it's a one-second song or a three-minute and 30-second song, okay? Every single second of that song is protected. Anything that you do not own the copyright in, you need to have permission to use. So if you're going to sample something, Either the, you have to have created the original music from which the sample is derived or, okay, so like you get on, you maybe create a couple beats or whatever on your computer, um, you create it, you own that music. You Let's say you record a guitar riff, right? Okay. And then you decide to take that riff and just maybe break it down into smaller chunks and sample it that way. Well, you own the original, so you can, you can use it that way. But let's say you hear somebody else's music, okay? You cannot take that without their permission. You cannot use it commercially. Now, I have seen situations, and I'm not saying that this is okay to do, but I've seen situations where an artist might sample something on a demo tape, right? And really the, the purpose is so that they can um, kind of show what they're, you know, what, what they're capable of, what they sound like, and they want to just be able to have an example for other people. The theory being, of course, that they're not actually selling that music, they're not making a commercial use of it, they're not distributing it, that sort of thing. Um, I'm saying, you know, you're really dancing on the line right there, right? right? Um, you know, the, if somebody wanted to sue you for copyright infringement, I'd say they'd, they'd probably have a, at least a prima facie case, right? Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, I know it's done. Um, if you want to take samples, make sure you clear the samples. Download, you know, with a lot of my clients who use images online, because I work with a lot of marketers, um, get your images, get your music from royalty-free websites mm -hmm. or royalty-free sources. Like, just make sure that you can get permission to use that ahead of time. And a caveat on that, there are always conditions around using it. You may not have to pay money but there may be other conditions of use, like what sort of subsequent use you can make of that, how you have to provide attribution for the source of that sort of thing. So don't just assume because something is royalty free that you can just plug and play, right? There right. is probably going to be some other things to keep in mind, but generally speaking, you know, royalty free music is a great way to go. Right, right. Um, or hire somebody to create music for you. Right. Mm -hmm. If you pay somebody and it's a work made for hire, again, you own the copyright in that. So in that case, you're good to go. So I recommend like that. that. Yeah, I definitely recommend the collaboration. Any excuse to collaborate, I recommend to people, right? Because it doubles your market value. You've got to work less, you know, you, you're hopefully absorbing their brand, their fanship and things like that. So, yeah, to me, it sounds like the optimal decision would be use this anytime you need to search royalty free music by all means you can go that route or you can be more intuitive about the atmosphere you want to use uh the the content you're creating and then you can find a local in your creative economy and use that transaction as an excuse to absorb their brand to create a new network to showcase that you support local and things like that then suddenly it's a wildly more beneficial transaction than just, can I take that song clip? You know, <laughs> you know? It, it's yeah, a I think that's great. That's priceless advice. I mean, that is on, on every level. That is fantastic. Uh, and I think, you know, your your constituents should really take that to heart. That's a brilliant idea. Well, thank you very much. Now, one, uh, you you seem to have an eye for the cutting edge. And that's what brought you into uh, e-commerce law and internet law and those sorts of uh, ideologies. Now I'm deeply involved in e-commerce as well. I probably own like four or five, technically four or five different e-commerce brands at this point. Um, and they could be small, like an online guitar store or you know a booking consulting firm or something like that. Um, but the world that I have been tempted to fall into the rabbit hole of is the world of nfts now nfts seem to have a legal system almost built into the communities in which they're hosted and to me that redefines the jurisdiction of where entertainment law interacts with the the, the nfts so can you kind of walk me through uh, where the lines start and stop between U.S. jurisdiction and where NFTs exist in this virtual space? And do you foresee you, you yourself representing any NFT type cases in the future? Okay, so there's a lot of questions there. Y um, yes, it well, is. Well, let's, well let's, let's just talk about what an NFT is, right? right. An NFT is really, it's, it's a technology version. It's a virtual version of something that would otherwise maybe be physical. So for example, use the Jack Dorsey tweet, right? That, that has been packaged as an NFT. And what an NFT says to the world is, here is this 
digital information that we can authenticate. We can say that this is the original of this. Think of it as the same thing as, you know, a reel-to-reel tape from, you know, a recording session in a studio, right? Once that recording is made, mm. that's the original. It doesn't mean that you can't make copies of it that all look and sound identical to the original, but right. none of those are the original. And so what an NFT is, is the NFT is saying, hey, you know, technologically, we can, you know, using technology, we can say that this file, this is the original, right? And there's no other one like it. Um, so I think when you start, when you can kind of equate it to property, physical property in that sense, it's a little bit easier to get your, your head around it, right? Mm -hmm. um, music, literature, film, anything that can be conveyed digitally is, is ripe for NFTs, right? Um, because you can, it, it's, it's, it, it's the equivalent basically, but it's a digital mm -hmm. equivalent of the original. Um, and I know they're, they're hot and sexy right now. <laughs> right. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see how the market plays out. Um, you know, if you think of something like a Van Gogh painting, the person who owns the Van Gogh painting, and maybe Van Gogh is not the right word, uh, right artist, because he's, you know, his the copyright I think is run on on a lot of his works. Um, let's say you have a, like a Banksy, okay, mm -hmm. or something like a current, well-known artist, and you own the original, okay. You you own the original. You can put it up in your office. You can put it in your home. You can't sell copies of it because you right. don't own the copyright in it, hmm. right? So that's that's kind of a similar concept. Now, where do NFTs fit in the global jurisdiction? Well, every country, every state has, uh, you know, has court systems that govern the legal rights and obligations that occur within their borders. So regardless of the fact that an NFT has no physical existence, the people who are transacting with it do, and they will have a presence and the law will be applied based on where either the transaction occurred or where the harm occurred or where the parties say it occurred. Mm. So for example, I mean, you and I could be sitting here in Illinois, but we could say, you know what, we want our contract to be governed by Delaware law. Okay, that's fine. A court in Illinois can apply the law of the state of Delaware to our situation and vice versa. A court in Delaware could apply the state of you know, Illinois state law. U.S. copyright law is federal, so it's the same across all 50 states. Um, generally speaking, the, because of the uh, Berne Convention, copyright law in, in any other country that is a party to the Berne Convention will have very, very similar rights and obligations and registration systems. May not be identical, but basically um, all of the countries that are signatories to the Berne Convention sort of agree to the same principles of copyright law. Okay. Now, what are, are there, for example, is China a part of that? Because I see I China, not, I, I see yeah. China constantly copyright infringing everything that seems like American capitalism creates in, yeah, in a lot of different I, ways. I don't, I don't know if China is a party of the Berne Convention. They, they may not be. They may, you know, I do know that China is its own system, and traditionally, non-Chinese companies have had 
uh, incredible difficulty, if no success whatsoever, protecting their intellectual property rights in China. Right. Um, the court systems, their legal system works differently. Um, their perception of rights is different than ours. Um, you know, and they they simply have no hesitation uh, to steal because they know that you know there's not much that we can do about it. Right. We might be able we might be able to prevent those things from coming back into the U.S., but that doesn't mean we can really do much to stop things outside of our borders. Right. Um, there are ways. You know, it's very expensive. The, it, it's you have to be a global brand to really have any sort of success, and even their success is piecemeal. Right. It's probably collateral based more so than like legal repercussions, because that's why I'm curious yeah. about the jurisdiction question, because the NFTs open up so many rabbit holes of conversations. Um, and I think maybe a good basic question to ask you um, as someone in entertainment law, do you have interest in investing in NFTs personally? Personally, not now. Um, it's you know, it's it's too much of a technology. I'm not I'm not convinced of the value proposition, and I could be wrong, right? I mean, I could just be a luddite uh, and you know be one of these people who doesn't get it. But I am personally, you know, having been in entertainment law, and believe me, I'm the first guy to tell you that content is king. Content is king. Content is king. Content is king. Right? I mean, it's right. just, content wins every single day. So, you know, but that aside, I'm not convinced of the value proposition of the NFT yet. I, I do see how as a novelty, there is some interest there. Um, I get the correlation between certain things and their exclusivity or limited availability, but it's, you know, not, not something that I'm, I'd be willing to invest in. Um, now, if you, let's say you had a company and you said, well, this is how we're going to bring NFTs to the masses and this is going to make money. I say, okay, well, that's a different business right. proposition. Right? right. And that, that I might be able to get behind. Um, so, you know, I'm curious, I want to see how it plays out. Yeah. And that kind of the jurisdiction question is also kind of, uh, it's, it's there, it's layered for me because I do have, I got, a, I have a gaming background, right? I was a nerd growing up. I love this game called RuneScape. And I mentioned this on another podcast recently. I made a set of armor in RuneScape. I sold the virtual, basically the NFT, the rights to that virtual armor at the age of like 14, sold it on eBay for 16 bucks, met him in a server room in RuneScape, did the trade for zero on his end because he paid actual cash. He walked away and transaction done, PayPal money acquired, right? So that was kind of the equivalent of the seven-year-old first business. That was one of the first times I made a digital product and sold it for real money. Now, so I've always kind of lived in that place, knowing that a virtual space can have its own governing rules and inherent values and uh, digital products can have, uh, though they're intangible, they can have different amounts of values. So, and I knew that it took me about 16 hours to make that armor, right? So the acquisition cost existed as well. I just didn't know how to, you know, put it all in my brain because I was having fun with it. So... I see the world of virtual reality only becoming more indecipherable than reality. You know, uh, Elon Musk says the likelihood that we're already in a simulation is more likely than we're not. Okay, so there are a lot of smart people that believe we're going to a virtual reality state of being that would be incredible. 
with that, do you foresee virtual reality societies having outside legal influence within those societies? Or do you feel like intellectual property laws will be able to keep, let's say, federal jurisdiction out of the gaming society of Fallout or pick any game and there's a community within there? And let's say in their community, you can do anything, but you're doing it virtually. There's no laws. How does the American intellectual property law get involved in a virtual reality community? And do you foresee that being an issue in the future? Well, I think it'll be an issue. It's been an issue in the past. Uh, I think we're absolutely going to a, in a direction where virtual reality, augmented reality will become a greater part of our everyday reality. Uh, and I can, I mean, I could go on in terms of applications outside of gaming. I mean, you have medicine, you have business, you have sports, you have all the different aspects where either virtual reality or augmented reality will will play a role, right? I think it's, it's really just a matter of technology being broadly available enough, right? We're just not there yet because it's expensive and it's somewhat, you know, it's it's more complicated. So it's it's much harder to access and we're just not at the critical mass yet. So we're going to get there. I think the the intellectual property laws, as they're written today, will be flexible enough to accommodate those things because they, you know, it's about rights and obligations and remedies. All the courts do, you know, when you, you, you mentioned jurisdiction, jurisdiction just means does a particular court are they the right venue to hear that dispute? Right? Is do they have? Is it? I don't want to get into constitutional law, but you know, do they do they have the jurisdiction over that controversy? Maybe yes, maybe no. There's a complicated test for it, um, but just because something exists in a virtual world doesn't mean that the harm only remains in the virtual world, right? We might have harm in the physical world, uh, but then you know you have rights and obligations of people, and those are addressed in the physical world. So, you know, and that has to do with where people are located. You, you, you can certainly get into esoteric conversations about like where the server is located, you know, and if it's all atoms, as a, or if it's all bits as opposed to atoms, you know, where does it really exist? Um, and I think courts have sort of addressed some of those issues, but you can absolutely like trademark law, right? If you create a video game and you use uh, you know, a well-known trademark like a Ford or a Coca-Cola or a Microsoft, they're going to object. They're going to say, hey, that, that's our trademark, right. right? You can't use our trademark in your product without our permission. That's what trademark law says. Um, similarly with copyright law, you know, you could theoretically, let's say you painted a painting inside of a video game, okay? Mm. Just because it's not a physical painting, does it mean that it's any less creative or any less protectable by copyright? I would argue, no, it's the same. It's just, it exists virtually versus physically. Gotcha. So I think, I mean, I, I think the laws will certainly, you know, adapt. You will always have cases that, that kind of push the boundaries, right? You know, you look, think back to the Napster case, you know, in music when 
um, digital downloads and digital streaming was like a new thing. And it took the courts a while and it took consumers a while to wrap their heads around the idea that music is music, rather it comes out of an instrument, right. it comes off of a magnetic tape recorder, it comes off of a CD-ROM or it gets streamed through your internet connection, you know? So it just, sometimes it does take the law and, and courts a little time to, to catch up with some of the modalities, if you will. But I think the structures are there. You right. Know, and I, it, you know, you will, you will have odd cases. There's this thing they teach you the first year of law school. Um, hard cases make bad law, right? Because it's always the ones with the really crazy fact patterns that you get a trial on. Mm. And then, you know, you've got a law that stems from a really crazy fact pattern as opposed to a more standard fact pattern. Right. I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's it's interesting. I mean, my my personal take on it is that the legal system doesn't stand a chance to be able to govern virtual space. There will always be the disruptors that either create a paywall or some sort of dark web entry point to where there will always be uh, virtual spaces that are completely ungoverned. Um, and it's interesting because, yeah, it's almost like I used to work on cruise ships and, you know, most of the carnival cruise ships were tethered to Panamanian jurisdiction, right? They were out of Panama and because they were registered and supposedly docked out of Panama, they got all these tax breaks. They got all these eco uh, violations that they didn't have to have anymore because they were in a third world country for the most part. So it'll be interesting to see where the cards fall you know, because I followed Snowden closely, I, you know, Julian Assange, and I I'm, don't mean to put my tinfoil hat on too much right now, but intellectual property law seems to be just, it, it's so intriguing to me because there are seemingly an infinite amount of doors that people could hide behind, right? And it seems like the easiest door to hide behind is a paywall. That 20K entry fee, like, oh, if you want to exist with the big dogs and you want to be relevant in this space, then you have to have an attachment to the US dollar or a certain type of currency so that you can be even relevant in this jurisdiction. Because to me, that's that seems to be where NFTs and in any sort of virtual reality space gets tethered back to uh, the legal jurisdiction is do you use US dollars? Because if you don't use U.S. dollars, then where does the jurisdiction start and stop? So this is another interesting question. Do you intend to ever accept cryptocurrency as payment for your services? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, I have started that process. I'm just not quite ready for it yet. I'm, I'm waiting for the cryptocurrency market to just sort of I think settle, it's a little bit too volatile right now. For example, if I take a US dollar, then I, then I know that what the value of that is, it's not gonna fluctuate 30% in one day, okay? Um, if I take a Bitcoin, okay, on the day it's given to me, it has a certain dollar value and I can wrap my head around that, okay? I know that I can theoretically extract that dollar value. But the next day, it may have a different value mm -hmm. because of the volatility of that particular type of currency. Um, you know, the same would be said if I was getting paid in, let's say, a third world, world currency that was highly speculative or highly volatile, right? Mm -hmm. It's just as, as a lawyer who's running a business, um, cryptocurrency, it's just, it's a value risk. Like I can't 
take the risk that the value significantly decreases. Hmm. It would be great if it increased. Sure, I would love that. But I can't live with the other side of that trade. You know, so you're kind of waiting for it. You're waiting for the smoke to clear and some of these to decrease in volatility so that you can have faith that your value will stick around. Um, Do you foresee that happening in the next two to three years? Do you see yourself walking into the crypto world? Uh, What sort of timetable do you foresee on that? I'm curious. This is more a personal question than anything. I'm curious about your perspective. You know, I haven't put a timeline on it. Um, I would say it's it's several years out, you know, would be my guess. It's several years out before cryptocurrency really kind of settles. Um, I think, you know, and, and part of that has to do with, you know, you've got new entrants into the field. I think the financial markets are still trying to figure out how do they leverage cryptocurrency. I think we can all agree it's here to stay. It's definitely a medium of value exchange. It makes sense. Um, I like it from the fact that it is not, um, you know, it's authentic and it's authenticatable, right? right. Um, so it's, it's, you can't counterfeit digital currency. The problem is it's just, it's volatility. And so I think, you know, I would say maybe 10 years from now, it would be a more common thing. Um, you know, I've already, listen, I've got a cryptocurrency wallet. I don't have any money in it, but you know, I've got one. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, so I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out. I'm definitely interested in it. I do know other lawyers have taken, you know, Bitcoin as payment, mm-hmm. um, you know, and maybe the, the trick there is just convert it to cash as soon as you get it. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in theory, I have no problem with it. It's, it's really more of just kind of a, at, at a basic business level. Um, I'm not ready to, to, to take that risk. Yeah. It seems like the ultimate intellectual property. Right. Yes. And, and, and the, the whole blockchain system behind it, it's taking an idea, putting a digital signature on it, attaching a value and then looking at a, a thousand other people going, it's worth that. Right. It's worth that. Right. And that's I mean, that is the ultimate intellectual property, in my opinion, or maybe I'm, my verbiage is a little bit off, but I'm so intrigued by it. So thank you for sharing your perspective on that, because in, as we move towards a more digital and like you said, uh, augmented reality. And just so for people, so that you know what that means, augmented reality, imagine that you're wearing sunglasses that have the weather displayed in them, you know, in the top left corner, or maybe your tweet feed is coming up in the top right corner uh, in the same way that you might have an HUD display on a video game. Our day-to-day is going to become more and more integrated like that further than just a cell phone in our hand. So staying protected as we become, because I mean, artists are going to be the purveyors of that digital space. We have to be the ones to create that digital space. So we ought to be the masters of our own territory, right? Um, So uh, thank you so much for all of this. I know we put on the tinfoil hat for a second, but (laughs) NFTs and crypto, it's a very real place that we're heading. And so many people are really interested in them. But at the end of the day, there are so many things that happen in a day-to-day music career that people need legal counsel for. Uh, Before you go on that reality show, before you walk into a studio for a 10-song agreement, um, you know, anytime someone sues you, there are so many reasons that people would need to reach out to you. And so when those moments come up, uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? And and what, what form of communication do you prefer? 
the really the best way to get a hold of me is either phone or email. Uh, I can tell you my my phone number. It's 866-734-2568. That's the main line. You know, if you can't get a hold of me, I'll get a voicemail message from you. My email address, it's very easy. It's David at adler-law.com. Uh, those are the two best ways to reach me. Uh, some of my clients do communicate me with, you know, with text message. Um, the problem is, you know, text message isn't always secure. It's not always the, you know, I, I've got a lot of stuff going on and I'm not always the most responsive um, with text messaging. Although I know that many, many people in creative field, that's their preferred mode of create, uh, communication. Um, you know, lawyers, we just, we work a little bit differently. Um, you know, I would say regardless of whether you're looking for me or looking for somebody else, if you think you are going down that path, um, it doesn't hurt to reach out to some people ahead of time and say, hey, what's your availability? What's your experience in this type of area? What is, you know, what do you charge? What's your rate? Do you give new artists a discount? You know, do you take pro bono work? Do you do reduced fee work? Is there a creative arts organization that you work with, right? So I mentioned earlier, I work with lawyers for the creative arts. So, you know, if you get referred to me for from lawyers for the creative arts, I already know that you might be eligible for pro bono legal assistance or reduced fee legal assistance, right? And um, so that's that's a way I've worked with a lot of artists who, you know, if they'd come in off the street and said, yeah, I want to hire you, I would say, okay, it's, you know, it's 450 an hour, I need a three hour retainer. And they'd be like, well, you know, I don't have that kind of money. And right. so, so, you know, I'd say definitely like anything else, be proactive, um, you know, try and try and just make some connections with people and say, Hey, you know, I, I have people who call me all the time. They're like, yeah, I'm releasing a show. I'm releasing an album. I don't need an entertainment lawyer yet, but I might need somebody in the future. What's it going to cost if I hire you? Right. And what can you do for me? What's your experience? Because believe me, I've crossed paths with many people here in the greater Chicago area who hold themselves out as entertainment lawyers who are not. Mm -hmm. Right. Just because it sounds like a sexy thing to say. <laughs> but, you know, I can I can honestly point to the fact that I have been recognized as a leading entertainment lawyer in Illinois for, you know, the better part of the last 10 years. So. Absolutely. And we refer people to you often. You've done great yes, work you for guys us. Do, and I, I appreciate it. <laughs> absolutely. So you've got the Artist Collective uh, stamp of approval and we use you for our lawyer. So if, if that doesn't tell you that we stand behind your services 100%, I don't know what does. So thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through some of the fundamentals and tell us your story and uh, for giving out your main phone line, guys. That's such an incredible addition to your network. Save that in your phone. And if and when you need some entertainment law, help, advice, direction, call David Adler. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show, David. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. I've got so many more questions. We'll have to do this again. <laughs> okay, we'll do, a, we'll do a round two. Heck yeah. All right. Thank you again. Bye.